Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are going to be discussing the topic of pacing horror games. Well, friends, we've returned from Necronomicon 2017, the HP Lovecraft Festival in Providence, Rhode Island. We had a great time and recorded four panels, including a joint show with our friends, the Miskatonic University Podcast. We've also recorded some videos around Providence, and you can view those on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. There's also a bunch of photos that went out on our Twitter feed, at goodfriendsofje. Necronomicon was a great experience, but sadly the three of us have not yet had chance to get together to record our memories of it, but these should feature in the next show. Also in the next show... We have some new backers on Patreon and we'll be saying thanks to those and maybe, you know, maybe some singing. Anyway, enough of all that good stuff. Now on to the bad stuff, the stuff you really hate. (laughs) No, I like the segment, it's just the name, Matt. It's just the name. In other words, it's time for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. So what's the word this week, Matt? This week it is... Seething. That's a good word. Oh, yes. One that really... Uh, certain people love this word. Yeah. Seething. Seething. That too. <laughs> it is indeed seething. Yeah. Seething. Make sound check. It's an adjective. One... Boiling or foaming as if boiling. Two, crowded and full of restless activity. Three, in a state of extreme agitation, especially through anger. Now, crowded and full of restless activity. I can see Lovecraft using this word a lot in New York. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This seems to kind of really sum up his experiences of the, the Brooklyn years. In one word. Yeah. Seething humanity. Yeah. Well, I, I, actually, no, I imagine there are a fair number of other words he would have used, none of which we'd actually want to use in the podcast. Okay. <laughs> All wonderfully and harmonious and yeah, full of love for his fellow man. Yes. So he managed to use this 18 times in his fiction, which is yeah, quite a good number for this, uh, for this word, I would say. Yeah, and I think even if we get past the roiling masses of humanity in in Brooklyn or New York in general, there is something about seething applied to life that speaks to the Lovecraftian to me of of kind of bubbling masses of entities coming up through the earth or the seething of a bubbling shoggoth. Yeah, it's, it's got that slight almost unwholesomeness to it. And the feeling that it implies within oneself of sort of anger and anxiety. Yeah, and the double meaning there is absolutely perfect for Lovecraft. It is that that feeling of things being out of balance in the outside world and out of balance within oneself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word seething in his writings. From the lurking fear. 
Seething, stewing, surging, bubbling like serpent slime, it rolled up and out of that yawning hole, spreading like a septic contagion and streaming from the cellar at every point of egress, streaming out to scatter through the accursed midnight forests and strew fear, madness and death. And from At the Mountains of Madness... That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness, far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation and eon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed austral world. And from the dreams in the witch house, he seemed to know what was coming. The monstrous burst of Valpurgus rhythm, in whose cosmic timber would be concentrated all the primal, ultimate space-time seethings, which lie behind the massed spheres of matter, and sometimes break forth in measured reverberations that penetrate faintly to every layer of entity, and give hideous significance throughout the worlds to certain dreaded periods. Now on to our main topic, pacing horror games. This is a topic that came out of a discussion on our Google Plus community recently, uh, where Tor Nielsen asked us basically how we go about pacing horror games, how we know when to wrap them up, how we you know keep things moving. It's something that we've touched upon a little bit in earlier episodes, I mean, particularly the middles episode of our beginning middles and ends uh, specials. Uh, that was episode 92. From the discussion that came up, it does seem like it warrants more exploration. Well, let's start drilling. Now, pace is a word I've heard banded around a lot. I kind of get an idea of what it means, but I'm not sure there's really consensus about exactly what people are talking about. Pace, you know, sometimes it's quick-paced, sometimes it's slow-paced. What are the pros and cons? What do we mean by pacing? I think from the discussion that came up, the the main practical consideration was how to actually make a game fit into a particular time slot, because quite often we are working to uh, perhaps um, you know we've got a group of friends together for the evening and we know some of them have got to have an early night, uh, or we're at a convention and we've got a limited game slot there, or we're at a club and we've got a limited uh, period of time there. Yeah. So yeah, we we know we've got to try to make this game work in three hours, four hours, or whatever. This is why I normally run an evening slot and then say, do people mind if we overrun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's admitting defeat before you start, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's not defeat at all. That's a case of if they like it and they keep on going at the rate they're going, that's fine. We'll, no, no, we'll wrap it's up fine. When we wrap it's up. fine. Well, yeah. I, I suppose, though, on that note, though, I, what do you consider an ideal length for a horror game? Four to five hours. I think because of all the experience at UK conventions, four hours... Yeah, I, I like short, sharp shocks. I mean, some of the most memorable games I've had have run in less than three, and you know, sometimes even two. But do you plan a game to be two or three hours? No. No. So you, when you're thinking of planning the game, are you thinking of four hours, or are you just thinking of an open-ended amount? Or It depends. I mean, I tend to view the length of a game slot as an upper limit. 
Yeah. And if something if it wraps up before then, I will never artificially keep a game going for longer than it needs to, just to fill up that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I said four hours, I'm I'm working to a four hour slot and I will endeavour to, to have it wrapped up within that four hours. I wouldn't really... I mean, I think it'd be highly exceptional for it to run under three hours because if, if people have turned up and they're also expecting a four-hour game, I kind of want to feel like I'm, we're, we're getting our money's worth, so to speak. But obviously, if it, does, if it were to wrap up in a lot less than that and clearly everybody's happy with that, then yeah, it'd be possible. But I guess I'd be looking at sort of three to four. Yeah, I, this is... I mean, it's an interesting thing to me and you know, I think this is something we, we, we should probably discuss here and now which is yeah for me i generally going into a game that i'm running have no idea how long it's going to run because i tend to gm in a very reactive way i don't tend to plot out you know these are the scenes this is the beginning middle and end this is what the climax is going to look like you know i will present a situation a series of problems and i will see what the players do with it and depending on how the players react to that, it could be something that resolves comparatively quickly. It could go on for some time. Obviously, you know, as we'll talk about later in this, this discussion, being able to bring that to a conclusion is a different set of skills. But where, if you've got a more structured or a more planned game, then it's probably easier to plot all that out and think, you know, right, OK, this is going to take three hours, this is going to take four hours. But, but what's our criteria here? Are we saying we're looking at an evening of play or a con game session or whatever is if we've got a three or four hour slot you're you're quite able to fit into that but you're saying what are you saying i i'm saying that i don't have a solid idea of how long the particular events that are going to happen in the game will take because i don't know what those events are going to be what i do have is a set of skills that allow me to manage the way those events play out but, you know, I can't sort of think, right, OK, now they're going to go off to the library and they're going to encounter so-and-so there, and this is going to take probably about 20 minutes to play out, and of course that's going to take them onto the mansion on the hill, and up there they'll meet the cultists and they'll have their big climax there and so on. Because generally in most convention games I run, you know, those locations may not exist before that game gets played. So what would you turn up at the table with, Scott? I mean, you've, you've, you've written a lot of published games. Obviously, when you're running one uh, of your own creation for your own, you know, not, not for publication, I think we should talk about here, you would turn up, obviously, with a... Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what would you turn up with? An opening scene, I'm yeah, guessing? Yeah, I'll turn up with a premise, an opening scene. If it's a convention game, I'll have pre-generated characters that hook into the whole thing. I'll have a series of bangs. I mean, we talked about bangs in the beginnings, middles and ends episode. So, but they're basically just events that the player characters have got to react to. So I'll have those, um, perhaps NPCs, uh, certainly NPC names and so on, but... Yeah, the, the rest of it will largely be improvised. So you, you put that in the player's hands, there's an opening scene, get the ball rolling, you've got ingredients you can throw in either to, to push the game on or if it gets a bit slow, Yeah, and you very much then just roll with what the players give you, Yeah, and at some point, I mean, you're keeping one eye on the clock, right? Absolutely. So if it's a four-hour session and yeah. it's like, at some point, and you 
tell me when this is you sort of start to think this is sort of feels like it's going towards a climax yeah and there are you know two rules of thumb i use there one is if a game seems to be reaching a natural conclusion then i will use that and i'll draw it to a conclusion then and you know this is what i was saying earlier about not worrying if it runs to the end of a game slot you know if this is an hour before you know the the game is supposed to finish then i'll still wrap it up there because i'd much rather have a memorable ending that happened yeah and then go off to the the bar with the players afterwards for an hour then you know sort of think right okay i've got to try this out for another hour let's just throw another monster in there they can fight that that'll keep them busy because i mean that bit never in my opinion makes for a satisfying game the other thing that i'll do is i will just make sure that i either have line of sight to a clock or uh because i don't wear a watch i have my phone on the table and just use that to check the time if the game doesn't seem to be approaching a natural conclusion then an hour before the end of the game, I'll think, right, okay, we're moving into the end game now. Let's just ramp things up, push things to a conclusion, and see what happens. Matt, how do you handle it? So, you know, thinking of, like we said, a three or four hour game slot, well, a four hour game slot, let's mm-hmm. go with that. And let's say you are running in the day and it's not one where they've said, okay, yeah, we're happy to run on afterwards mm-hmm. so you, you are containing it how how do you sort of approach it when you sit down at the table or when you prepare what it would mainly be preparation beforehand um i'd look to see the scenario obviously the scenario i'm running look at the structure of, of not like not making it sound like they're all railroady but ad's to be these to see these to d just the kind of normal progressions that i've seen happen with this scenario over play testing or when i've run it in previous times well, hang on let me stop you there though because obviously the first time you've run it you're talking about that progression coming out of something you've seen happen during play mm-hmm. but the first time you're doing it before you've got that experience how do you judge that that'd be partly what playtesting is for no no but no no but, yeah, this but, is what we're talking that, about the first, but, but, but the first play test the first time you're running it oh then i have absolutely no idea um then it okay. is purely i just run without any inkling of time constraint or pacing i just run it through to see what happens let's say right yeah you know, i've come around to your place for an evening mm-hmm. you know to play test a game that you're going to be running at a convention later on mm-hmm. obviously you know that you'll have a three or a four hour game slot you know to to play that at the convention or that you're going to be running at the club and you'll have three hours to do it there mm-hmm. now you may not have the same time constraints when uh we're playing it at your place for the evening but you know you, you don't have unlimited time either mm-hmm. So how do you go about controlling the pace then, when, when you're first trying all this out? It, it is actually quite a minimal consideration of mine. I'm not too worried about how long it takes something to play over, but I'm more interested to see the route the players will take through the scenario, which scenes they are more going to be, uh, which kind of route through the various options that I've got laid out for them they will take, and then I will use that to craft the three, hour, um, the three or four hour session at the convention with by going, the majority of time they've done... A, B, C, or A, D, F. I'll ditch everything else and focus purely on those because I know these work in this time constraint. Uh, so you time prune some okay. scenes or some elements or maybe NPCs or whatever yeah, elements out of the, the game. Yeah, I'll chop to, I'll chop bits that I know are not going to be followed up on because they very rarely get followed up on. They're in or the director's they, cut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but what happens then when you've done all that but you go along to your convention with your three-hour game slot and you've got, you know, scenes A through G kind of roughly outlined. Uh, you know that half of them probably won't get used. And the players start off from A and suddenly they're at Q, which you hadn't even thought of. 
then then to some extent, hey, I've got to improvise, and I've re- I really have to try and uh, just roll with the flow. I don't use if it, if they have gone in such a random direction, I don't try and shoehorn them back in because it will feel shoehorned. It yeah. will feel very artificial, and it will feel frankly shit. But as long as I can go off and riff off what they're doing, I don't mind. Um, I, but are you confident that you can then kind of keep control of that enough that you can end within the time constraints that you've got? Yeah, I'll either find a natural point where it ends before the slot finishes, or I'll see if we've got an hour left to run. Similar kind of thing. I usually have some kind of timekeeping device on the table or that I can see. Normally, nine times out of ten, it's the phone sat by my notes. Yeah. That as soon as the hour rolls around, that's the point where I'm thinking no more deviation head towards the end keep that keep that finishing line in sight and that's generally about the kind of time that i need between for deciding and wrapping up so i mean it sounds like your techniques and mine aren't actually that different it's just that i don't tend to bother with or, or at least don't tend to do that that expectation that there's going to be you know the, these scenes that mm-hmm. you know it's just sort of you know uh, the players will do something, you know, I'll react to it. Yeah, I, t- I tend to put a bit more prep in at the beginning yeah. and think of possibilities that might happen rather than just sitting down and go, hey, surprise me! It's, no, I'd, I'd like to have a bit of structure because I feel more confident once I've either run it before or I've got an idea of a, a very specific pictures of scenes in my mind. Okay. Yep, yep, yeah, I can, I can understand that. How about you then, Paul? I'd always have an opening scene... And I was thinking about the opening scenes for for a variety of scenarios that I've done, and there's no one-size-fits-all, really. Sometimes they're, you know, I don't know, maybe in the midst of action. Other times it's just sat around a gun pie just chatting to people or something like that. So there's no one-size-fits-all. But I think the one thing that the opening scene has to do is put the the feeling of the setting and, and everything into the player's lap so they can very quickly buy into what this this game's about. So that, that's hopefully, I guess, a, a sort of strong opening scene of, of some sort that sets, the, sets it up. Once the opening scene's kind of out of the way, then I've got a selection of scenes that follow that opening scene. And generally, there's a kind of a what might one might call a path of least resistance through the scenario i suppose and often this you know i'd I'd end up using the same scenes for different groups sometimes in a different order and depending how quickly the game is going then i might ditch some of those scenes or perhaps introduce something else but by kind of a set point you know i don't particularly think oh, an hour before but depends on the game but i know there's some point they kind of need to reach before that that, that sort of triggers the the end game and preferably if i'm running a game that's a self-contained thing i would set it up such that as gm if it's not really going towards the end game that i can trigger the end game right um, so that I'm not sat around wondering where this is going to go while the players are kind of floundering and just doing various stuff and then, you know, time's ticking past and it's not driving towards a climax that I can kind of engineer that. Okay. Um, can you give some specific examples? Because and it is, it's all very well talking in the abstract about triggering that end game. But I guess if people have, have asked, you know, how we'd go about doing it, we probably want to give some concrete examples of, of you know, the kinds of things that they can do to, to make this happen. When it comes to triggering that end game, 
there's there's watching the clock and sort of seeing that you know we need to sort of push things on and there's a feeling of of pacing the game such that if they're not sort of heading towards that place where i want them to be then i can kind of throw more clues in their lap Hmm. or that the end game it's not really down to the players it's that you know this npc is going to do this thing at a certain time and time in in game time is quite an elastic thing so you know you look at your clock and you know what it's it's, it's almost midnight now and you know i've got the npc is going to do the thing at midnight and suddenly bingo we're into the kind of final scenes I've got a similar kind of mechanism I can think of used a couple of times where it relies on an NPC giving information to the players and then it's what the players do with that information that then sparks uh, kind of the dominoes falling, as it were. That in in the example I'm thinking of, without trying to be spoilerific, uh, this NPC is usually foreshadowed that they can see that this person has been walking around the area or has been seen by people in the area that the PCs are, or the investigators are looking around, but they haven't been able to track them down yet. And then you as the GM drop them in their lap, they give their, ex- uh, well, not exposition, but they at least they reveal things from their perspective. Everything suddenly makes sense to the investigators and then it's the, uh, they're left with the question, what do you do? And it's their actions to resolve that then form the endgame. And similarly, even if it's not just exposition, if there's a particular antagonist that they're hunting down and perhaps the clues haven't led them there yet, then either you can throw in a couple of big clues and just sort of say, right, you know, this is the direction you should be going in. You know, the, the person you're looking for is obviously in the old warehouse. You, know, you, you spot one of their associates and you manage to follow them there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, you turn the tables and it's sort of, right, OK, you're dithering around, but you've got this antagonist. They're going to bring the fight to you. <laughs> you you don't have to be entirely reactive. Hmm. I mean, very much along these lines, one of the other questions we were asked as part of this discussion is, at what point during the proceedings do you reveal stuff, particularly reveal the nature of the horror that they're facing? I think that really depends on the scenario. Mm. Um, I know some scenarios, and I'm determined I will write one eventually, where it pretty much starts with, bang, here's the horror straight off the bat. And then it's yeah. you. the rest of the scenario is you reacting to that. Whereas others are a nice slow burn that they then finally reveal it right at the very end. Others maybe an hour before, so you can then have that time to deal with it. It's completely down to the story. Yeah, I think much like Trigger in the Endgame, it's very hard to talk in general terms about this because it's very down to the specific scenario. And I'm very against having a formula for scenarios. So I think when do you reveal the horror? When it feels right for your game, really. I think if you want a kind of a slow boil game, then you're just dropping hints and so on. And that allows time for the players to have breathing space and just get into role playing their characters and in in, in the fun of that. Or if you want a more kick-ass beginning and then crazy stuff happening, I think I would maybe start with that. But then then I'd follow it with a, a kind of breathing space where you get time to kind of collect yourselves and chat and get into character. Because that's my concern with with starting off with the horror straight out the box. Because it's like, if it's a game where you're playing regular people and you're suddenly hit with the horror, sometimes I've observed that people stop playing their their, their characters and, and focus on the on this big threat. Yeah, I mean, it, like you say, it depends an awful lot. I mean, it depends entirely on what the nature of the horror is and what you expect the player characters to do about it. 
I can think of at least one convention game I've run where I, I've run it a number of times. I've never actually written it up. An unknown army's game called We Had Faces, where you're basically from the opening scene, you're you're hit with the horror. This is you know this is the bad thing that has happened. You know what are you going to do about it? And it, you know the the purpose of the game, the purpose of the scenario is entirely the player characters trying to come to terms with it, trying to see whether there's any way out of this apparently hopeless situation they found themselves in. There are lots of backstory elements to the characters, which then, rather than necessarily just providing cues for character interaction, also sort of unravel and, and help them understand the larger scope of what they're involved in, and perhaps ways out of it. I remember that scenario very, very fondly. Um, although I can't disagree with that it's a hopeless situation. You punch a certain NPC in the face repeatedly long enough, you're probably going to get them to do what you want. <laughs> you're making an enemy for life, but hey, you will get what you want. Maybe. Or, or it may backfire really horribly, <laughs> as some groups have found out. But, I mean, other times, it varies so much because there may be more than one layer to the horror, that it's a kind of drip-feeding of revelations and building revelations, and you don't realise until the, you know, towards the end what, you know, the, the, the big thing that's going on is. But having these, these smaller revelations, what they do in terms of pacing, the, the really useful thing that they do, is they give the player characters a sense of urgency and they give them an idea of what the problem uh, that they face is and allow them to start coming up with courses of action to deal with this. Let's take a look at how we speed things up and slow things down. You know, I'm very much like of opinion that a game speed is like my car. The accelerator goes in one direction. It doesn't ever come. It yeah. doesn't ever come back up. It doesn't also ever slow down. Like that. Yeah, that's when you run at the end of the slot where you run into something. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's start off with with talking about how we keep the pace moving, how we build yeah. the pace. Starting at the very beginning, I think one of the easiest things to do is start as late into the events as you can. If you have a very tight game slot or you know, if, if you want to run a short game, rather than uh, sort of giving a slow build up to events, I, maybe not even start in media res, but at least start with a significant moment in the game. Well, there's an example I can think of which I wrestled with for a scenario for one of the World War Cthulhu scenarios in Europe Ablaze, where a group of SOE agents were going to be going over to Europe to carry out an operation. So there was the military aspect of the mission, and then there was a mythos part of the mission, and the two were sequential, so one after the other. And plotting out the military mission without any of the characters dying and with it being a one-shot, it was quite difficult. And then I thought, well, actually, how about I just have it that we cut, like you just said, Scott, to fur as far on as I can. So actually we cut, the game begins pretty much just before you get to the second part of the game. And we have a few flashbacks to how the military mission went. And that was my resolution there, which I hope kind of ties in with what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sometimes that thing that you're fixating on, you can actually sort of say, okay, well, actually, you know, maybe they've just done all that and just pick it up afterwards. Yeah. Much like, you know, Reservoir Dogs, the film. We don't see the heist, but it's kind of crucial to the film. 
And so I don't think you really need to. It is all about the aftermath for that. Exactly. exactly. That's where the fun was. So that's where the film yeah. concentrated. Yeah. But I think anybody scripting that, you know, anybody else scripting that, it would have been hard not to think of doing the heist, right, in the bank and, yeah. and everything. It, it turned into just another version of Heat, though, in that respect. Hmm. Just because you're you're starting relatively late into the events doesn't mean that you have to be you know have to use an immediate res start or you know start with a big bang. I mean, it can still be a fairly gentle you know atmosphere building opening scene. It's just that you're starting it at an important juncture. So, for example, another unknown army's game I've run, Lamppost and Bloom, starts with a very gentle opening scene of a, a family barbecue and a group of people sitting around, usually bickering because someone's just burned the steaks. That is a fairly gentle introduction, but at the same time, it's happening just at a point where, unbeknownst to most of the characters, their life has just hit a crisis point. And, you know, things escalate very, very quickly from that point. Well, the crisis point was burning the steaks, right? Absolutely, I, I, yeah. I remember sizzling those burgers with venom afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a good place to start then. So not necessarily in depth of the action, but stuff has happened, and we're into it now. We're on a roll. We're on the opening scene. But they've done the opening scene, and now, you know, they're going to, they're on a mission now. They're going to go and do the next thing. But, you know, first off, uh, we need to go to the hardware store. And, oh, don't you need to get a gun? Shoes. And, uh, what kind of sh- Always shoes? Always need more shoes. The shoes, yeah. We need that stuff, right, Scott? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the look on his face. Uh, can I just get the book, actually, Scott, and just look at the equipment list for yeah. about half an hour? Is that I, right? And, and got, yeah. Because how much money have we got? Got to make sure we can afford it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, yes, I mean, in, particularly in convention games, but actually in, these days in almost every game I run, even if it's an ongoing campaign, I will not track money, I will not track equipment. You know, if someone really takes the piss and sort of says, oh, right, yeah, okay, the, yeah, my, my you know, nurse, you know, who works on the NHS, you know, also obviously has a private plane and, you know, a couple of speedboats and stuff like that, and it's, well, actually, no, let's, let's talk about this. But How it's in the back garden? Yeah. Under, underground lair. Um, but, but, you know, within reason, as long as the players don't get, take the piss, I have no, no interest in keeping track of stuff like this. So when it comes to shopping or checking what you know, equipment people have got and sourcing it and tracking finances and so on, that is the most uninteresting shit to me in a game. And I will elide all of it. And often within that opening that we were saying, you know, things have already kind of happened maybe in the past and the, the, you're entering a point partway into the story perhaps so i would just say to the players this is the opening scene now if there's anything you think you're you should have just tell me what it is and add it to your sheet if one of them says oh you know i should have a gun then well maybe they should but you know make it appropriate crate of dynamite on every character sheet <laughs> no just yours matt <laughs> that's what i mean every character sheet of mine has a crate of dynamite <laughs> but but i mean depending on the game I mean, sometimes you can just handle stuff like that very quickly with a roll and it's sort of yeah absolutely you know, yeah yeah you know, credit rating roll to see whether you've got enough yeah. money to buy this or a uh, a luck roll to see whether you know the local shop does actually sell dynamite uh, but yeah, on on the whole, stuff like this really isn't that important. In the kind of games we play, yeah. generally it isn't. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're playing D and D, particularly old school D and D, and you know, it's all about the plus one weapons and and stuff like that. Then yes, shopping and acquiring equipment develops a whole new degree of importance. Mm. And encumbrance rolls, don't forget them. Yes, such fun. I think this applies to a great many scenes that, on the whole 
again, it varies an awful lot depending on the tone of the game and the type of the game. But travelling from point A to point B, you know, uh, yes, I mean, sometimes... I mean, let's say you're playing a game like The One Ring, where it's all about the journeys, and you've got special mechanics for that, and, and yes, okay, you will want to play over those travel scenes. You're playing a Call of Cthulhu game, and it's sort of right, okay, we're going to get on a plane and fly to Cairo. Okay, next scene, you're in Cairo. Yeah. Well, there is admittedly a... Uh, one book I can think of that does play around with the travel aspect that's Mythos Expeditions Yes, where it is specifically about the journey has its complications and it has things that it will throw in the way of you but yeah I must admit if I'm, unless I'm specifically playing an expedition game I will resort to Indiana Jones red line across the map and we're yeah. done but I think this is an important thing in your GM toolbox for limited time span games to try and speed up certain things hence you know the speeding up and that kind of um, traveling, yeah. Some people, if left to their own devices, some players will sort of just sort of start playing it out. And yeah, if it's going to be, if you can feel it's fun, then by all means go with it. But yeah, like you say, kind of yeah, uh, but- try to speed that up. And likewise with the the planning. I mean, I played a, a Shadow Run game a while back, and that was your problem. Well, <laughs> and. And, um, you know, we find out that the thing is taking place at, you know, a mansion in grounds. And it's like, okay, are we going to go and raid it then? Or what are we going to do? Nope, we're going to tool up. We're going to look at all the equipment lists. And then, what are we going to, are we going to go there? No, no, because I'm a player, right? No, no, some of the other players, we're going to go and check the place out. We're going to spy out on it one day. Uh, And then we watch for when the guards go around it and... And, like, somebody can go in their astral form and they can try and get in. And it's kind of, yeah, okay, but, you know, we've only got a limit. It was a con game here. And the easiest option is you're playing Shadowrun. You have a hacker. You go onto some automated cargo um, cargo plane server. You drop a plane on the fucking mansion and declare the scenario a win. Done. (laughs) I didn't know about that. That actually doesn't sound as bad as, as some cases I've, I've encountered, though, because at least that planning was an active thing. The people were doing things like casing the joint and, and you know, doing some exploration and so on. And, yeah, I mean, that can get quite tedious, particularly for all the other players who are sitting around twiddling their thumbs while it happens. But uh, what's even worse than that, and I've encountered this in a great many games, is where players will sit around for half an hour, an hour, and talk about these things in an abstract. I mean, they, their characters yeah. aren't actually doing anything. Yeah. It's just sort of, oh, well, yeah, obviously we should go and, and you know, case the mansion, and, and, you know, my character's got some skills and stealth, so he can go and, and you know, look around in the bushes. Or maybe your character can get a job as a maid and go in there and, and you know, look around that and so on. Or oh, actually, no, you know, we're not quite sure if they're hiring in any way. There's probably going to be, you know... Yeah, uh, they, they, and the what-ifs, yeah. just stack on what-ifs and more what-ifs. Yes. And you're going down a path that, once you get there... Probably none of those options are actually relevant anyway. Yeah. Harking back to our previous episode on uh, Mage the Awakening, there's a wonderful little spell which encourages um, encourages a certain course of play, which I very much like to adopt these days. It's a very low-level time spell, but it basically says if you rush into a scene unprepared and unplanned, you get bonuses. <laughs> so um, you start get uh, you start getting eight, nine, ten again mechanics. Basically, if fate just says this was the course of action you were meant to take, so 
fuck planning, just running like a bull in a china shop and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> just punch everyone in the face. It'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. I, none of this is to say that, you know, particularly in the Call of Cthulhu game, that the player character should never be cautious. No. Or think through the consequences of what they're doing. But if you are spending an hour of a three-hour game sitting there planning a course of action in terms that will probably never actually come up during the game, yeah. you have... You know, wasted most of the opportunity available for you to, I think that, to have fun. That should remain in campaign play. That is not a one-shot. Or if it is, I, it's I, a very I, specific oh, one-shot. I, 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 all right. I have played one-shots where, you know, this has happened. Oh, God. Uh, I think what I feel, you know, it, it can be fun planning these things out and you're all kind of anxious and nervous and sort of saying, oh, you know, I could do this and you could do that. And while there's an emotional content there, it's good. It's where the energy just sinks and everybody's looking at sheets and, and nobody's yeah. really doing anything and it's just circular arguments and what ifs and you can just feel the energy in the room drop and it's like, oh, this is no fun. Yeah, and yeah, certainly as a GM, if I'm in a game where that starts happening, you know, I, I will, after a few minutes of that, just sort of cut in and say, okay, oh, that, that's all very well and fine, but what do you do? Yeah. And uh, you know, as soon as, you know, if, if the conversation starts going back to abstract planning and so on, it's no, 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 that, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll deal with stuff as it comes up. What do you do? Yeah. And that, in a microcosm as well, that's scenes where players are saying what they might do. Yes. And actually just stopping them and saying, no, no, what are you actually doing right now with yeah. that, you know, box of matches? <laughs> Putting it to the end of the dynamite fuse. <laughs> <laughs> but and running away. But really nailing down stuff that's going on uh, rather than the stuff that might happen. And, you know, I don't want to, I think we might be coming across here as, as, as it has to be all fast paced and no planning. Yeah. And we're really not saying that. No, what we're saying is if it's getting boring, don't be afraid to stop it being boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah well, from my angle, planning has its pace and it's generally not in a one shot. Or if it is, it's a very small amount of planning for a relatively simple problem you have to get over. Compl yeah. Complicated solutions like that, like getting into the big bads layer, should be something that's kind of the end of a campaign. Yes. Not for a one shot game at a time. I, and, and even then, even if it's the end of a campaign, if you're spending... Yeah, long enough on it that most of the people you know sitting around the table are there playing with their phones or doodling on their character sheets. Then you know a couple it's gone of people too are, long. Yeah, yeah. Then, then yeah, don't be afraid to jump in and make things start moving. I'd like to think in that kind of scenario that uh, if it is the combination of a campaign where everyone's brought into it, that people would be invested in the planning, that they wouldn't be sat there around on their phones. But if it goes on too long, it's probably going to happen. Yeah. Equally here, I think we talked about the dullness of looking at equipment lists and so on. I mean, that can be fun, but, you know, when rules, discussions and so on. Yeah. If, again, if, you, if you're against the clock, you're the GM. If they say, can we do this? You've just got to be able to sort of say either, oh, I know where that is. I'll just quickly check or... Okay, I just make a decision right you, here and now. You, you see, you know, the first example you get there is more than I'll do during a game. I very much stick to GMing very rules-like games these days. The the most complex game I GM is Call of Cthulhu, and that's not exactly you know a, a crunchy game. So it's comparatively easy for me to carry all the mechanics I need in my head. Uh, if it gets to the stage where someone's sort of saying, um, "Oh right, yeah, I, I've got a um, yeah." 
uh, you know, such and such a sniper rifle. You know, what, what's the range on that? Is that a, you know, 90 yards, 120 yards? What is it? And, you know, I will not stop and look that up. And, you know, I'll just sort of say, right, 90 yards. And if, if after the game someone comes back to me and says, well, actually, it was 120 years. Well, OK, fair enough. But I don't even pin it down. I'll just say long enough. Yeah. But, I mean, because in a lot of cases like that, what you're talking about is things that are so abstract anyway that you know 90 or 120 yards is not a real distance in the game anyway. You, you, no, because then they say, how far away are they? And that's an arbitrary decision up to you. Yeah. Generally. Uh, but, but it's also other stuff like, you know, it maybe you know, how a particular spell works or something like that. And maybe I'll get a little detail of it wrong. Unless it completely destroys the game, which, you know, is unlikely, then I'm quite happy just to, you know, um, race past that in, in order to stop that. You know, let's sit down. Oh, hang on, I can't quite find it in the index. Let's flick through. Um, oh, sorry, I'm not a very fast reader. It will just take me about, you know, two minutes to read all this. You know, you lot have fun without me. Mm-hmm. And another thing I'll sometimes do is if they're, particularly if it's kind of heading into, you know, we're into the end game somebody triggers off what is going to be quite a big combat and now you said call of cthulhu isn't too much of a rules heavy game but it does take a while to play out a combat and i know that's going to play out and if it's kind of not really that important in the story sometimes i'll just for the sake of speed just say let's condense this to a couple of rolls and i'll just are you happy with that and the player generally say yeah yeah let's do that as an aside, probably not one to put in there. That is actually a combat optional um, optional combat rule in Mage. You do <coughs> one roll to decide right. combat. Yeah. Yeah, I can certainly think of a number of convention games where I've done that, where you know, sort of, it's it's not been an option in the official rules, but it's just, uh, you know, oh, we we can do this with one roll. Are you happy to do that? And I think it's important to get the players buy-in. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but if they're happy, you know, to make an unimportant conflict, you know, much more streamlined, uh, then yeah, that keeps the pace going. And I don't think I've ever had a player say no to that. Suggestion. I think it's always important to get the players buy-in, like with the yeah. shopping thing or the planning thing, any of those things just say are you okay if we just move this on yeah and you know everybody knows about the time constraints but if somebody really wants to do something they will sort of say well uh hold on can i just do this thing or can i just get this thing or whatever the the only exception to that is you know going back to what we were saying about uh, rules discussions um if someone is sort of really hung up on debating you know an interpretation of a rule or something like that if they you know if they are quite happy to, while well, the rest of the game is going on, sit there and look something up, then, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily object to that. Most of the time, you know, I will just say to the player, you know, hang, well, I may be wrong, but let's just move on with it and let's get going. Uh, because it, it doesn't just sap the energy out of the game, but it can create some out-of-character conflict. And it, I've, I've never seen a discussion like that make the game more fun for anyone. Ultimately, if if you are having this problem quite a lot, what you have to do is just rewrite the fucking rule system. <laughs> so your name's on the cover. <laughs> just point for that, whether, and then hit them with it. That's yeah. you know that's what I've spent ten years, you know, resolving this problem. And I've, I've still seen you get the rules wrong sometimes. Paul. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to fill that in. Oh, I'm, you should. You should. Having, having to get up on the table and hang on a minute, let me check. <laughs> Time is. It was pacing. So, in the spirit of speeding things up, can I cut to slowing things down with Gaz's comment? Yeah, okay. Now, our friend Gaz 
of the Smart Party of uh, What Would the Smart Party Do podcast has a classic quote, which I don't know if it's classic to everybody else, but is to us, no game ever suffered from too much pace. Now, what does that mean? And is it true? Yes. Well, I can think of one example where it definitely does What suffer. does it mean? What does it mean? Um, I think he likes the fact that games always, uh, they want to get fast, faster and faster and faster and they're building towards a climax and bang, it hits them at the end of the game. But I can think of one game that had so much pace and was so fast where half an hour felt like three hours that I just wanted the game to end. <laughs> Tune. <laughs> Bye! Fucking God, that is such a draining game. Oh, really? Seriously, it, honestly, after half an hour, I felt so drained and so lethargic at the table because it was so fast mm. that, honestly, that was too much. Because certainly much. I feel with watching films, sometimes there's lots of action and crazy stuff happening. And actually, I f it gets a bit boring. I remember watching the start of Gladiator and there's all the, the combats and the fights and stuff. And they're quite good. But then he goes into, um, Russell Crowe goes into the tent and talks with the, the Roman commander and just, we, you know, we've all slowed everything down and they're just talking, two guys in a tent. But I was on the edge of my seat with that. It was really, really dramatic, but they're just, you know, it's just a, a conversation. But I, but I guess the point is that something interesting was still happening in the Oh, scene. absolutely. But would most people see that as a, that's a change in pace, but going from, you know, you know, people impaling each other on swords and hurling spears and fireballs and stuff to two guys talking in a tent. That doesn't seem like an upping of pace. Well, no, but on the other hand, I, a lot of the time when we're talking about uh, keeping the pace moving, we're talking about skipping over the boring stuff, the stuff that doesn't matter. Something like that, I mean, that, that, that dialogue, it still does matter. I mean, it's, it's progressing the story, uh, it's introducing elements of conflict. It, you know, the conflict may not involve you know, someone getting stabbed in the face by the short sword, but it's, it's still conflict. So how do I, how as GM, how do I make use of that pacing thing that, you know, no game suffers from too much pace? Because combat and so on implies pace to me because it's action and it's, it should be fast, but, you know, often it's not. Yeah, I, I think in role-playing games, actually, perversely, it's the other way around. But how do I make use of this? Don't uh, do combat. <laughs> um, well, I think... You know, part of it is what we've already talked about, and making sure that any scene that happens, anything that's happening at the table, is about something important. If it is two people sitting in a tent talking, as long as they're not talking about, uh, you know, wh how much, you know, the, a short sword is going to cost, or, you know, uh, whether, whether any of them is actually going to be able to get employment in the, uh, in, in the villa as, as a, a manservant, then, um, yeah, th then it's likely that something is going to happen. But who decides if it's important or not? And I mean, look, look at some of the scenes oh. in um, Pulp Fiction where they're talking about TV shows or getting a burger in Europe. Is that important? No, it's not important. Oh, well, okay, important, fun, entertaining. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there isn't a hard and fast rule to this, but I think if you as a, as a GM or as another player can see this scene going on at the table and can see that... No one is actually finding this interesting. If it's not going anywhere, it's pointless. You know, as a GM, you know, the, 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 the thing to do is just sort of say, all right, OK, you know, let's move on to the next scene or ninjas attack or, or something like that. You know, something to shake things up, move things on. 
it might be counterintuitive to pace, but I think those kind of scenes are important to story. Thinking of the conversation about Big Mac with cheese and Royale oh, totally. with cheese. Oh, yeah, yeah. That as long as they can, as long as they don't outstay their welcome. Yes, that's the key yeah. thing. That if you th- if you have to have them in for thematic reasons, like making either a very stark juxtaposition between normality and horror, or having it that it's setting up something that some information comes in that scene that is then suddenly really vital later on. The main thing is that you don't. Uh, don't pad it out and don't uh, have too much fluff around it. You have your kernel of the info you want to get across, but then really strip it down to the bone around that. But sometimes it's two player characters talking. And, for example, you know, when, when I was running uh, Trail of Cthulhu at the club recently, a poison tree, there were a lot of the scenes that went on between the player characters there where it wasn't planning stuff, it wasn't interacting with the main plot. There was character stuff that was going on between the PCs. And as a GM, I just basically stood back and, and didn't interfere with that because I could see everyone involved was having fun with it. Yeah, even some, thinking of that game particularly, some of the NPCs that turned up that didn't really serve much of a purpose. The uh, the, the one that made me still keeps me smiling is the one that uh, just randomly pops up and says, "I got to shoot some pigs." And that one, the cr- the crazy drug dealer, um, things like that. They're entertaining and they're great. Yeah, I don't think pacing is a useful word to me. I, maybe I just don't understand what pacing means, but it seems just like keep it interesting. Well, I guess whether it's fast paced, slow paced, whatever, it's just about keeping it interesting. Yeah, I, I guess in in a horror game, you know, part of it is a sense of threat, a sense of things happening, and sometimes you do want to have lulls there. You want to have scenes where it is just people talking, or you know, you're, you're off to one side having a breather, because those allow you to then build the tension back up again. Mm. One of the games we talked about in an earlier episode, Dead of Night, actually has this mechanic in there you know, for tension. And the idea is that tension is a spendable resource that the GM has got, and as bad things happen, the tension goes up. But you can then spend the tension to make something happen. And so you know, things hit a climax, something really bad happens, and then there's the lull. And you get that breather, and it's just sort of, oh, okay. Because if you had that, that kind of peak tension running all the way through then you get inured to it yeah well you don't get it do you yeah or you get you try or you get to the last scene and the gm just makes you fail every single bloody roll Mm. (laughs) yes well i'll do that anyway (laughs) i know (laughs) i think the other thing that slow scenes allow you to do is introduce an element of atmosphere that if you're talking about all the little things that seem wrong with the world or eerie noises on the wind, uh, you know, funny smells, characters who, you know, behave in a slightly off way, then these tend to happen at quiet points during the game. You're, you're not really going to be paying much attention to that when something's trying to eat your face. Mm-hmm. It gives you that chance to slowly build that sense of disquiet that is so important to the foundation of building horror in the game. And how do you know if you're building atmosphere? How do you know if your game's entertaining? Because you just got to feel if it is, I think. And if it's not, if you're just feeling, like we said, the energy kind of drops or people aren't really engaged, then that's a sign where you need to kind of work on those aspects to develop those things. And there's, there's various techniques that we've discussed in previous episodes for building those but i think ultimately you've got to be a barometer of are those is this gripping me read your players and if they seem like they're having a good time generally they are 
Yes, and you know, if things do seem to be very quiet, if your players are, you're fiddling or playing with their phones or whatever, then yeah, you know, take take that as an indication that you've got to make something else happen. That may, you know, maybe it is, you know, they, you know, ninjas attack or two guys with guns walk in. Well, it's yeah. that thing you've got. You know, we talked about the planning, and you know, there's those, those things that you've got perhaps on your sheet that you haven't brought in yet. You've said about bangs, Scott. You've said about scenes, Matt. Things that you've got that you can bring in. Now, time to bring one of those in. The other thing that's important, of course, is knowing when to stop the game. We, we mentioned some of this at the start of the episode. So that whole idea of you know, perhaps looking at your clock and deciding that you want to push it to a climax in an hour's time. We covered a whole bunch of techniques for doing this in the ends episode. And it's, I mean, it's probably not very interesting for us to you know, reiterate those here. But if you're interested in learning more about you know, how we'd do that as GMs, then, then go back and listen to episode 93. Well, let's wrap up then with some final thoughts about pacing. I think this has been a difficult one to talk about without discussing spoilers of specific scenarios, which is something we were all reluctant to do. A, because we're giving spoilers for scenarios, and B, because, you know, if you're not familiar with that scenario, then it's going to be a difficult thing to communicate. Well, and also C, because they're very, very specific things that probably only apply to that scenario, and they're not general tools you can use. Yeah, it's it's a problem that you've got to have context in a lot of the time. So I hope we've been able to communicate our individual ways of addressing this because I think we do each have different ways of doing it. I think, you know, Scott, you're much more kind of improvisational through it. I think I've got more of a set structure of, of scenes than a, a, a tr- an ending that kind of gets triggered. Matt, you seem to be somewhere between the two. Yeah, I'd say but fair degree of front-end planning but then impro at the table. But I think most of it comes down to identifying or learning how to identify what is the interesting stuff in the game uh, and focus on that. Um, learn to identify the stuff that doesn't actually serve the game at all, doesn't make it any more interesting for you or the players. Get rid of all that stuff. Yeah, I think if anything, if I've got anything out of this show, I think it's that I've perhaps better understood what people mean by pacing a game. Because to be honest, I've always sort of nodded and been like, yeah, I understand that, but no, I'm not really quite sure what you mean. Um, and now I kind of understand it to mean, you know, making sure the game is engaging and, well, I guess engaging is the best term because it can yeah. be entertaining, it can be horrifying, it can be whatever, but it should be engaging throughout. And when that level of engagement and energy drops, then that's the problem. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a slower pace as long as the players are finding that interesting, as long as you're finding it interesting. As we mentioned before, you know, th- those, those thoughtful, deliberate bits, you know, perhaps very talk-heavy bits, where you're getting to introduce creepy elements or you know, slowly building up atmosphere, that really works sometimes. I, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that you know, a couple of my favourite films are very, very slow but very atmospheric ones, like you know, Solaris, the original uh, Tarkovsky Solaris, or, or uh, Stalker. I mean, Stalker is you know, a three- or four-hour film in which fundamentally nothing happens, but at the same time, every frame of it is at, so dripping with atmosphere and menace that it feels more horrifying than if things actually had happened. 
And I'm not recommending that you do the same thing in a game, but uh, you know, th- those quiet moments where you can make the players feel dread are going to be every bit as powerful, if not more powerful, than the bits where a Shoggoth is eating their face off. Well, I hope that's been a useful discussion. I've certainly got something out of talking through it with you guys. So until next time, it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com And then we'll throw in the word of the week. I think we should just leave it like that. That is the most enthusiastic he's been yeah. about, about the word of the week. Yeah, but that's, that's because I know it's not going to the fucking episode. <laughs> <laughs>